How pervasive are security vulnerabilities in implantable cardiac devices and the related systems and software that run with those products? And what are the risks to patient safety and data security? I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with cybersecurity researcher Billy Rios of security firm Whitescope. He and a colleague, Jonathan Butts, have just released preliminary findings of a new study they conducted that evaluated the security of implantable cardiac devices, including pacemaker programmers, home monitoring systems, and pacemaker devices of four different vendors. Billy will be discussing some of the key findings from that study. So, Billy, for starters, please briefly describe why you decided to examine the security of the implantable cardiac device ecosystem. For instance, there has been some alerts issued in recent months by the FDA regarding cyber vulnerabilities found by other researchers in some cardiac products from St. Jude Medical. Were those warnings something that provoked you to examine the cardiac devices of other manufacturers? I think uh, Jonathan and I just, you know, we think these systems are pretty interesting. They're very important, obviously. And we had looked into some of these systems previously just uh, as a cursory look, but uh, we thought it would be an interesting project to kind of deep dive into how these things work and then just uh, see whether or not there's major differences between the various vendors that basically represent this whole ecosystem. So what did you examine and what sorts of security weaknesses did you find? We came across a, a variety of really interesting things. So, you know, if we had to break the project down into various steps, I think the, the first step is to actually acquire some of these devices. And so, you know, we went to a variety of sources to get these things. We were able to purchase, you know, off of third-party markets, auction websites and things like that, the home monitoring devices, some of the actual implanted implantable devices themselves as well. But probably I think what's most surprising to, to everyone is you're, you're, you're also able to actually get programmers these are kind of considered controlled items. Sometimes they don't actually even really belong to the hospital. They belong to the manufacturer and they're supposed to be returned back to the manufacturer. But the programmers literally adjust the therapy that's delivered from the devices. It's what a physician would use to essentially program the therapeutic uh, parameters onto the actual pacemaker or ICD, uh, the implanted device. It's kind of the, the key to this whole ecosystem. That's why we wanted to start with the programmers. Uh, we showed that if you really want to get one of these things, you can. Uh, there's a variety of ways to get those things. So started there. You know, we probably looked at these devices in a way that other folks haven't. We we literally tore them apart. We opened them up. We saw how the internals uh, are kind of formatted and how they look. Uh, looked at the various chipsets uh, that each one of these devices within this system of systems supports, and then looked at some of the software that's on them and just did a lot of reverse engineering to figure out exactly how these systems work. And then uh, we compared the various manufacturers against each other in a, in a variety of kind of categories to see if there are major differences in the way that uh, one you know particular manufacturer approached this problem as opposed to others. So uh, it took it took some time, you know. I, I think uh, we started working on this project many many months ago. This is not something we did over the last couple of weeks or anything like that. And so, uh, but but really, it was a initially it was to satisfy some curiosity as to how these things work. But uh, just given some of the things that we saw, we thought we would share that with the rest of the in- industry here. So, Billy, with that said, what are the most serious potential data security and patient safety risks posed by what you found? 
we came across some really interesting things. For example, you know, we came across you know some obvious kind of trade-offs for patient care and cybersecurity. Whether or not those are considered actual like real cybersecurity issues or not, I think that's that's still up for debate. But there are some definite places where we could see that patient care uh, definitely influenced the design of some of these systems. I'll, I'll talk more specifically about that here in a bit. Uh, you know, and then we come, came across some interesting things like, you know, on one of the devices we, we saw there was actual real patient data on there uh, from a hospital. Uh, we've reported that to the appropriate agencies. We saw that all the manufacturers are still challenged by keeping their devices up to date. We saw a, a huge number of known vulnerable third-party libraries on all the pacemaker programmers as part of our research. Uh, and then, you know, I think at the end of the day, there's some things I think that just as, as a cybersecurity researcher, we won't, probably won't be able to solve. There's some things I think that industry as a whole, when I say industry, the pacemaker kind of industry, uh, ICD industry as a whole should probably get together and talk about how they're going to approach certain problems like authentication, for example, how they're going to approach certain problems like identity, you know, access management, how they're going to be able to control things like availability of some of these systems on third-party markets and the way that they do radio-based communications. And so what this research project was really designed to be is just provide enough data to where, uh, you know, we could have kind of a common ground or a foundational level understanding of how these systems work and then spark a conversation amongst the industry. So, Billy, being that you were able to acquire many of these products on sort of the third-party aftermarket, were the problems associated with data still being on these systems and products, you know, pertaining to particular patients? Or is it also sort of a look into some of the design problems with these products that could pose risks and vulnerabilities as they're being used with patients? Or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. And so what we didn't want to do in the research paper that we released is call out any specific vendor or call out or shame a particular vendor for a way that they did something. That's not to say that we didn't come across specific vulnerabilities and specific vendor implementations. There certainly was that, right? And and those issues uh, were handled separately. Those actually have gone to DHS, ICS, CERT, and they're working their way through the coordinated disclosure process, right? So the manufacturer is aware of some of the things that we found. And we don't want to go public with those issues just until, at least until they're, until they're addressed and fixed, that's for sure. But what we wanted to focus on in the research paper was just things that we saw that affected basically all the manufacturers. And so you bring up a really good point there. You know, the storage of data, for example, in, in two of the manufacturers, two of the four, we actually verified that they are actually storing patient data unencrypted on their pacemaker programmers, for example. And one example, we actually came across real patient data from a real hospital because we had acquired this programmer from a third party. The data hadn't been properly sanitized or wiped from the programmer when we got it. So we had to go through a whole exercise of making sure that uh, the appropriate government agencies were notified that the that the hospital is going to get notified in some specific way uh, and whether or not the patient data that were on the device, making sure that the patients could get notified in the appropriate way as well. So we certainly had to deal with that sort of thing. And then there are some other things that we saw where, uh, you know, essentially the entire industry does things in a certain way. So for example, None of the requirements require like any kind of authentication from the pacemaker to the programmer, right? That's, a, I think, a decision that was made by each manufacturer because it enables a lot of different patient care scenarios. So it allows a lot of benefit to the patient. So, But it still is a decision that it seems like all the manufacturers have made. It seems like it's an architecture that all the manufacturers have adopted. And so we thought things like that were very interested. We're not saying that that's a, 
a flaw or a vulnerability, but it's just something that I think people should understand as to how these systems work, right? And then at the end of the day, uh, some of the things that we saw, they're not easily fixed. At, at the end of the day, a lot of these decisions are going to involve trade-offs as far as what benefits do they provide to the patient, patient care, uh, and then what risks do they kind of bring up from a cybersecurity standpoint. And in the paper, what we don't want to do is just say, hey, look, this is how we should address these things or fix these things. We wanted to make sure that everyone understands that these are the things that the industry does. It's not one particular vendor. It's not one particular model of a pacemaker or pacemaker uh, programmer or even a home monitoring system. This is just the way this pacemaker ecosystem works. And as an industry, as a pacemaker industry, these manufacturers have to come together, you know, with the appropriate representation from physicians and doctors, cardiologists especially need to be involved in this, cybersecurity researchers, maybe even the regulatory body, and figure out what the most appropriate trade-offs are. Because there are going to be some, we have to compromise in some way. But I think this, the research paper is a good starting point to helping everyone understand uh, where the ecosystem lies right now and basically what we're dealing with. And then we can decide from this point what's acceptable and what's not. So, Billy, with that said, at this point, based on what you found, what's your advice to the makers of these cardiac devices? And also, what's your advice to the healthcare providers who care for patients that have these implanted devices in their bodies? I think there does need to be a really, really good, hard conversation about how these systems work what the typical workflow looks like for a cardiologist that's using these systems, uh, and also what the risks are that are associated with these things. So what we don't want to do is move faster than we can safely secure these systems, right? We don't want to do that. We don't want to find ourselves in a position where we're looking back and wondering, how did we get here? Because we've dug ourselves in a hole that's too deep to get out of. I don't think we're there yet, right? But seeing some of the advancements in some of these connected devices, seeing the current state of the ecosystem, for example, like the update stories for all the manufacturers is is really poor, right? It's just something that is poorly done across the entire industry. It's an industry-wide issue. Uh, things like that, we, we need to have a really hard conversation about how we're going to deal with those types of issues. What's acceptable from a manufacturing perspective, what's acceptable from a physician's perspective and a patient care perspective, and what's acceptable from a cybersecurity researcher perspective, right? And so getting all these folks together to kind of talk about these issues, that needs to be done. And I don't think that has been done yet. So in the past, we certainly heard the opinions of cybersecurity researchers. We've certainly heard the opinions of uh, physicians and, and what they believe. And we've also heard the opinions of manufacturers. But, you know, what's kind of missing there is, is the patient story, right? And so what we need to do is get together as a whole, as an industry, and, and figure some of these problems out. And there's not going to be clear-cut solutions for a lot of these problems. It's actually just going to be understanding you know, what the potential benefits are, what the potential risks are, and finding a good compromise between the two. And, and then making sure that everyone understands you know, why we're going forward in a, in a particular direction. So, but once again, like, like I said before, what we don't want to do is just move forward blindly and then find ourselves in a bad situation in the future. And, and I think if we don't get together as an industry and, and work on some of these problems, that's what's going to happen. And so, Billy, as you mentioned, the preliminary study does not publicly identify the four vendors that you examined. And you also mentioned that in some cases where there were some disturbing sorts of things that you found that you approached the FDA or other regulatory bodies about perhaps data that maybe shouldn't have been on these devices. Looking ahead, what comes next? 
the way that we wanted to handle the findings is probably different than how some researchers have handled it in the past. And once again, it's because the intent of this is not to you know shame a particular vendor or, or you know a mistake that they happen to make in their implementation. We, we didn't want to do that, uh, considering that there's so many things that the industry as a whole has to address. But at the same time, if we did come across some some issues with a particular implementation, we wanted to make sure that the vendor was aware of that and that they could fix that in the most appropriate way. And so when we did this research, we wanted to also make sure that as much as we could, we wanted to be as inclusive as possible. So, you know, we didn't want to specifically identify the vendors, but we did provide advanced copies of this research to both the FDA and also to the NHISAC, right, which is the National Healthcare Information Sharing Coordination Center. And so if you're a member of NHISAC, you would have gotten an advanced copy of our research. You could have asked questions. You could have been prepared to answer questions if your executive leadership had questions about the research when it was made public. And so as much as we could, we wanted to make sure that the folks in the healthcare industry that are basically doing the right things were, were basically rewarded for doing the right things, right? Being a part of an information sharing organization and being active in the, the community as far as cybersecurity goes. And so we took those steps. And so I think those mechanisms worked. NHISAC got our research out to various members of the healthcare community. Uh, We had some feedback early on about some of the things that we had seen. But from this point forward, I hope that the research does spur some conversation about where these trade-offs between you know patient care and the benefits that could be allowed by connected systems, uh, what are those benefits and what are the risks associated with them and what we find acceptable as a community. I hope we can have a conversation about that. And that's really what the research is kind of meant to spur. And finally, Billy, as you mentioned earlier, you were able to purchase these various devices and equipment on the aftermarket, and you were able to obtain these devices as a you know, so-called ethical hacker, security researcher. How confident are you that malicious hackers haven't already found some of the things that you've found in your research and that patients aren't at risk right now? I'm certain other people are doing research into these devices, right? So I, I think as every day goes by, you know, the general public is being made more and more aware of the types of research that's being done by criminal elements, by state-sponsored you know, organizations and things like that. So to think that someone else hasn't looked at some of these systems in the past is, is pretty naive, especially given how accessible they are, right? So I think if you look at the blog posts uh, that we had put out, you'll literally see a picture of the receipt that I have from an auction website showing that you know I purchased a device with my personal credit card and had it shipped to my home address, right? So it's not like you have to create a fake organization or pretend like you're a doctor in order to get one of these devices. Uh, literally anyone can buy one of these devices, have it shipped to their home and start doing research on them. So the obscurity that's provided by uh, getting these devices and being able to analyze the software, that's certainly not going to prevent someone from finding uh, issues within within the ecosystem. So we can't depend on that. It has to be built on real security engineering and, and real mitigations. Thanks, Billy. I've been speaking to Billy Rios. I'm Marianne Kolbusak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.